Hello and welcome to episode one of Educating the Educators, a podcast dedicated to discussion teaching with teachers. My name is Jamie Pearson and I am a teacher educator working in the northeast of England. Today we'll be diving into the annual Teesside University Initial Teacher Education Subject Specialist Conference as a group of trainee teachers discuss the challenges and opportunities in their subject areas. The conference took place on Friday the 18th of March 2022 and was attended by a range of student teachers. We'll be talking to trainees teaching criminology, sociology, psychology and history, as well as law. And we'll have a fascinating discussion about curriculum, equality, funding, as well as much, much more. Stay tuned to listen to episode one of Educating the Educators with me, your host, Jamie Pearson. So in your challenges and opportunities, Amy, you talked about class sizes. So could you elaborate on what challenges and opportunities you face in your subject specialism for me? Yeah, so it's class sizes linked with how the subject is assessed. So criminology, there's only one level of qualification available for this sort of age group at college, which is a diploma which is assessed similar to a BTEC. So it's a 50% sort of open book assessment where they take all the notes in um, and 50% exam. But you get the same UCAS points as you would if you did a full A level. Um, So it's quite appealing. It's good in the sense that it's easily accessible to students that might be interested in the subject, but maybe don't get as high a grades in like English and maths as they would hope. But it's also accessible to students on the sort of higher performing end. So what we found is that that's led to larger class sizes because there's more of an uptake of the subject at this level, given that it's like a newer emerging science. Um, so because of that, we have the larger class sizes. But because of the one dimensional nature of how it's assessed, um, it's really difficult to differentiate between um, the students that might be less able to perform as well to the students that find it um, more sort of second nature to them. Um, so we do find that the students are coming not always for the right reasons um, and there's that sort of disparity between the level of extension that you can actually do as a teacher with the content and the curriculum only allows you to elaborate so far. So certain extensions can be challenging for those students that need that scaffolding um, whilst trying to balance ensuring that the students on the less able end are supported enough to grasp the content um, so yeah it's sort of they're interlinked class sizes on a smaller scale would help even just maybe separating things out into sets which I know we try to move away from because it's not conducive to that peer learning which helps to scaffold students but it's very it's sort of we're stuck between a rock and a hard place with the problems and then how you manage that in the classroom um, and then the sort of problems that come out behavioural wise because of that, you know, with maybe social loafing and a bit of boredom and, you know, trying to manage all of that. So um, there's it sounds like there. a really challenge. Sorry, I talked over you there. Sounds like a really challenging situation that you're in there. What might explain some of the the reason why criminology is becoming so popular do you think it's because of the popularity of true crime at the moment yeah i definitely think if you look at what's 
what's on the TV, if you look at what's on Netflix, if you look at what's trending, like across the world, there is this engagement with crime and criminality um, and just this in, this growing interest in it, even sort of novels and things, you know, it's more written about now, it's less taboo, it's more sort of popular to be something you're interested in, whereas I think generations ago it was very much a bit odd to be interested in you know why people are killed and that sort of thing so I think there's a lot of I mean sociology people will probably have more of an idea about that which I completely don't so I'm very um sort of plain in terms of my knowledge on the backup of that but I tried to do some research as to why there's not a separate qualification as an A-level um and there's just nothing out there there's no answer as to why I think that it was brought in when the government were pushing um, BTECs and accessibility and I think it was a new hot thing and it was like yeah let's do it in this subject um, and so it made sense but I think now we're a few years down the line we're seeing the issues with that and I, I don't know how else they can um, cope with the growing demand other than to do that differentiation um, but the exam boards and um, assessors just haven't produced anything yet so it's I think it's one of those we'll see what happens but I think society's interest is peaking I think it'll only continue so we're going to have to see a shift in that or the actual educational institutions aren't going to be able to to cope with that um and also universities there's still some universities that don't recognize the qualification so that'll have to shift as well depending on how people want to use it as a sort of board to take off a career potentially in the area so lots of things <laughs> um to think about as a former lawyer then do you find it the, the content of the of criminology as a subject is it is it aimed towards law or is it more sociology in, in that sense no so i mean i've got a bit of a unique like perspective on this because I went for the job, which was law and criminology, but from a timetable and point of view, because I'm limited with childcare, I couldn't teach law this year. So obviously that's my subject specialism in theory. Um, but criminology was kind of sold to me in the sense that it's got its grounding in law. Um, but actually, I have essentially had to teach myself the subject. There's psychology, there's criminal, you know, there's sociology in there. There's lots of things I've had to really study myself. Um to get a basis of of being able to then teach that um so i would say law is probably the least featured there's a very very little overlap um it's very much more um a social science in the sort of the theory sense and i think um Sue, you were saying about a lot of law being more um sort of like assessment focused of driven of like learn these things criminology is less like that and i think the way it's assessed reflects that as well um there is there are some students that do law but a lot of them do BTEC law um rather than the A level and they do have an advantage but a lot of students also do psychology and sociology and criminology because they're really nice they go together and there's lots of overlap um but yeah so it's definitely more in line with those I would say than it is with with law um the sort of legal grounding in it is very minimal it's sort of you know how is law made briefly and maybe the the odd bit of law but you certainly don't need any knowledge of that really to you know I, I don't particularly think my legal background has benefited in my teaching of criminology I think somebody with a sociology or a psychology background would probably have a greater benefit 
of teaching that subject. Yeah, that's my understanding of criminology as well, because my my experience, law's always been kind of contract law or tort law, not necessarily criminal law, especially sort of level three, BTEC level. Would that be something you would agree with, Sewer, as well? Um, actually, um, I I study on my placement, um, I teach students, sorry, uh, BTEC applied law, and a lot of it is to do with um, crime, a lot of it is to do with, you know, um, robbery, theft, um, murder, manslaughter, and that kind of thing. And I must admit, yeah, it is it is really assessment driven. It's really focused. There's not a lot of um, space or flexibility to do anything with it. You've just got to basically give, give this knowledge to these students and kind of expect them to um, recall it and be able to apply it. There's not a lot of flexibility when teaching law. OK, so reflecting there on what um, Amy was just saying, your sort of opportunity and challenge area it was about the expansion of law into into other areas and other subjects. Will you just talk on about that a little bit more for us? Um, yeah, so a lot of um, subjects nowadays, subjects like business, um, criminology, and I think a bit of sociology as well, um, require students to um, study an aspect of the law for accreditation. And what tends to happen is that these students are familiar with a different teaching style or learning style. They're more familiar maybe with a, a learner-centred teaching approach, whereas for law, it's very teacher-centred. It's very um, a traditional lecturing method where the teacher kind of presents the information and then the students kind of end up doing something with it. And the kind of delivery of all of these facts all at once can create a lot of cognitive overload and so what teachers end up having well teachers teaching law to non-law students as they call it because their background isn't law it becomes really difficult to kind of get these students to be able to do something with it they're not familiar so what they think a lot of the time is actually law is challenging law is really boring because of the way that it's taught as well or the way it has to be taught Yeah, so my experience of, of of law then is that it's very Socratic in its approach, that there's case studies and then you sort of almost role play through Socratic questioning um these different case studies that have that have um yeah. that have that have happened, I suppose, historically. Is it was would that be an accurate interpretation? Yes, yeah, so basically when we're having to kind of explain key legal principles, we use cases to put it into perspective. And these cases are basically case facts, facts of the case that kind of tell the students, you know, well, this is how it's applied in real life. This is how it works. So um, it does help in that sense. But when you're teaching them and you're trying to kind of make it more interactive and more um, learner centered it, it can be difficult to do that because you can't you can't give them an activity to say you can now act as the jury or you can act as the judge because they've not come across this before you need to be able to give them that information kind of loaded um to them in in a lesson and a lot of the time it takes up the majority of the lesson to do that to get that across and so it doesn't allow for much room to have them do something with it or become interactive in the classroom Brilliant, thank you. So linking off the back of that then, the little discussion about law, Courtney, in in your challenges and opportunities, you talk about domestic violence um, and teaching that from a sociological point of view. So do you want to talk us through what 
challenges and opportunities um, you yeah. have come across? Certainly. So um, as the context, so um, I teach sociology um, and it's part of the AQA exam board. So one of the first topics that you do, in fact, the first topic that you do um, is about families and households, um, because that seems kind of a nice jumping off point into the subject, um, because um, all students will have some experience of living in a family or some sort of household in a capacity. Um, but as you sort of move through that topic, you do touch upon issues of power within relationships, power within households and potentially the dark side of family life. And um, that's what they kind of coin the term and they discuss domestic violence, domestic abuse. So that is naturally going to be a sensitive topic to discuss anyway. Um, but thinking about how that could have worsened um, in the context of the pandemic, um, there is actually, I do have some studies for us. So um, the charity Women's Aid did release a report in 2020 thinking about um, the impact of COVID-19 um, and lockdowns um, on actually um, worsening the severity of domestic violence. So they'd said um, of women living with an abuser during lockdown, 61% said that abuse had worsened. Um, but there was also a, a terrifying fact that those who experienced the abuse and had children, um, over half of them were actually saying that the children had witnessed more abuse. And knowing that some of those children could be learners in our classrooms, um, as sociology teachers, how do we then um, deal with sensitive topics? What is the correct approach to take, knowing that you could upset someone in the room or that others in the class um, may not take it so seriously, may say upsetting comments, um, and how does that alter the way that you approach behaviour management and discussion management as well and act as a mediator in scenarios such as that? Yeah, so there's a big literature, isn't there, on trauma-informed teaching and ACEs as well. And I imagine um, if students how experience those kinds of things growing up, it's going to really be challenging to teach those those kind of concepts in sociology isn't it especially i've taught that module myself at a level so i i know some of the some of the topics and issues that do come up in teaching sociology um so what do you do specifically then to try to do that what kind of strategies do you employ in the classroom do you, would you say you use a trauma-informed approach yes i certainly do i think um initially i wouldn't have um, had those sort of words for it in the explanation around it, but reading into it and reflecting on my own experience, because it was very much something that I thought, I'm going to go in, I'm just going to treat it sensitively and say, um, and offer a trigger warning. That wasn't informed by any approach, but I have since read articles that back up and they say it's very much the standard practice if there are sensitive uh, topics being discussed. Offer a trigger warning and say to students, there might be some content that's upsetting. If you feel like you need to leave the room, that's absolutely fine. What I did find interesting though is that they pointed out that could have the disadvantage of well, it just kind of blocks that student off from engaging with the lesson if some say they don't know attend at all because it's going to be upsetting while it's beneficial for them in the sense they don't have to go through an upsetting situation they then are missing out on part of the education and it could very well be examined still and it's how do you juggle that and I think now that I've reflected on my own experience and read a little bit more I'm going to take the approach of still allowing the trigger warning but also um, thinking as well about um, offering more breaks in the session if a student becomes upset, rather than picking them out of the class and drawing attention to them being upset, just calling a class-wide break and saying, 
we'll just stop here and we'll pick it back up in a second and incorporate a little bit more rest time in that discussion and then speak to that person or that survivor potentially just one-on-one and assess that need in this in the situation and really fit it around them um, and and consider that as part of the trauma-informed approach. Fiona, I saw you just asked a question there. Do you want to um, elaborate for us? Yeah, sorry, I didn't want to inter- uh, inter- in- I can't even speak now, interrupt everyone. So I was just interested when you were talking about the emotive aspects and as teachers, we've all got to be aware of that. However, we are constrained by our curriculum plan. We've got and we've been given and accredited so many hours in order to deliver a programme and often they don't allow for the emotive responses for the discussions. And you spoke about the classroom management style in terms of, right, we've got break time or trying to observe and see like, who's getting upset, who do I need, you know, what subject do I need to maybe move along quickly with? But how would you embed that into your teaching? Do you man- do you find that you can manage that I have the benefit of as this being part of my first year so I just have the one class so it was very much very flexible I do have that luxury of being able to just work with that one class Um, but also the my job outside teaching is working in supporting learners with study skills etc so I also have more time in that regard than a normal member of staff um, would have to kind of really deal with that emotional side of the pastoral side and check that particular student is okay. I do think it is going to be tricky to balance, um, particularly depending on different schools, different colleges will have different allowances for break times as well. But Mm -hmm. I think if you were going in to plan the lesson, um, certainly include it in your lesson plan. I might go for a break here and just kind of take the topic into smaller chunks, but still try and and kind of cap it and say, but we need to get through this topic and And then think about how you can kind of either move something along towards the mm-hmm. end um, or then just say this is kind of wrapping up the topic, do yeah. a summary and then just say this is the time that we're spending on it and we're going to move on to something. Because I also think it, I wouldn't want to drag it out for anyone as well if yeah. it is, again, a sensitive topic. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned before that you offer trigger warnings and things like that. Now, I know there'd be a lot of critics that would say that was teachers being woke and things like that. I just, um, what they would also say though is, um, if if students do decide that they don't want to take part in that session, are they not missing out on learning? And how do you address that as a teacher? Yeah, so that was one of the key concerns that they've sort of spoken about. Um, Are they just removing themselves from the situation? What do you do? And that's why I think rather than, I think it's fine to say, this is a warning about what the topic is going to discuss and then give potentially even on teams because we've got communication platforms as well have that forewarning students can come to you if they think they're going to be upset about it but to vote the lesson time and say if possible can you still attend um and we'll go through the content and if it's upsetting give them a break by all means but still try and encourage them to build that resilience and, and sort of come back into the room Um, and keep moving forward with it so that they're not missing out on that part um, of the curriculum because as I say it could be assessed and for all it'll be an upsetting topic for them they shouldn't have to miss out on explanations or ways to think about it and potentially it could I've not looked into it it could have the potential being useful for them to kind of understand 
one side of it or one aspect of it sociologically speaking anyway potentially link that into a sort of ongoing healing process if other members of staff are aware as well I'd be very interested to see if taking this sort of approach would be beneficial um, in kind of keeping student there and kind of building that resilience up even though you should still always allow it, um, them the space to breathe if they are getting upset by something. Brilliant, thank you. Kayleigh, do you have a question there? Uh, yeah, it's just for Courtney. Um, Hi. Just with that, um, I just wanted to know how um, a lot of the time with anyone do, who has gone through trauma or who has suffered things like that and they do want to choose to go into learning subjects like that, they usually generally have an idea of what topics are going to be coming up. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes, obviously, they're already raised in like your your, prof your student profiles before. So a lot of the time you would already know. Would you then maybe chat to them before you you told them that, that that subject was coming up? Or would you think that maybe just letting them get on with it is better rather than kind of having that one on one with them before it happens? I think in an ideal scenario, I would like to speak to the student one on one because um, everyone's experience is going to be different and if there are potentially multiple students in that room they might have had very different experiences and might handle it and respond to it differently. Um, so I think given what I've already just said I would probably stick to something like maybe making a general announcement to the class either um, the previous lesson saying this is what we're going to be discussing next week or give them a term plan of the different topics and let them know when that's planning uh, when that's going to be um, held or what week that's going to be running um, but potentially put a team's message out and sort of offer a forum for them to then come to me and, and discuss it. I wouldn't want to make generalisations because I think it's a very unique um, situation to that particular person um, and I would probably take the approach, speak to them one-on-one. -on -one. Great stuff, thank you. Thanks. So um, Georgia, I mentioned there to Courtney um, that, that one of the criticisms would be that that's teachers being woke um, and woke being this form of social activism that we have now. Anything that's social activism is considered to be woke in, in 21st century Britain. Uh, woke being a pejorative now rather than the positive thing that I would associate it with. So I just wondered what your thoughts on that would, would be. Um, I think that really does come a lot with sociology teachers and other take it come being quite liberal. I think woke even though seen as quite derogatory, I quite like being seen as walk. I think if you're saying it in Athens, like we'll work to the issues and we'll work to what is happening in society. And I think, especially doing sociology, you do know what comes with it and it is a big study of society. I think if you're not walk to the issues that are happening, then how can you go on to then study it or even understand it and evaluate it and analyse it yourself? Um, and I think with social activism, a lot of people will take it as if, oh, we need to change the world. Like me in my classroom and my students have to change the whole world as we see it now. And I don't think that is the case. I think it just comes with the fact that we are able to look at society and see what is wrong and just say, like, what's well, our opinion on it? And this is what we'd like to change in the future as a generational thing rather than being labelled as woke and being labelled as we're trying to change everything that we see as it is. So do you think it's the teacher's role to be a little bit of a social activist then and be um, political or politically aware? 
I think, especially in sociology, we teach about the new right and we talk about right-wing politics and left-wing politics. And I know within teaching, we can't really be biased within that. And especially my teachers will certainly miss you at all. I'm like, I can't really say much about that. I'm very much politically not biased in that sense. But then they say to me, Miss, but you can't be a Tory, you teach sociology. And it's very much like, I, I laugh along, but it's, um, I think, in our, if we're saying that social activism is a role of ours, we just give them what we have and what we know in that curriculum. And if they see that as being social activists and see it as, oh, well, maybe we should listen to Miss and see what we want to change in our own practice and our own opinions as we are now. Then I think maybe we should be helping them in that sense and helping them scaffold them into wanting to do that if that's how they see it. Yeah, so um, have you come across Paolo Freire before? He's an um, educational philosopher, I suppose, and he wrote a famous book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And there's a famous quote in there, and I know Kaylee's smiling because I talk about this all the time. Um, teaching is a political activity he talks about you know being teacher being a teacher is a political choice what your your thoughts on that quote would be I totally agree with him I think you can't be a teacher you can't teach young people and be blind to every issue that's happening you can't be blind to the decisions that our prime minister takes you can't be blind to things like I was saying to the kids here, they're like, do you know who the Prime Minister is? And some of them just shook their heads. And I think we have to be active in helping our young people go into this world and give them those opportunities to understand the world issues. And if you want to see social activism in that way, I think it's totally our job to educate them on the issues that they are going to be going into in later life. So I do think it's like our job to be politically aware even if you don't know the ins and outs of it you do need to understand the kind of rules that we have in our society and teach them the way that we have to be in brilliant thank you so this leads on to you james so you talked about in your challenges and opportunities talked about the impartiality of um the government in in what it does in teaching um so if you'd like to sorry i didn't explain that very well but if you'd like to explain it for us um, yeah, it's because education is a very good means, uh, and this has been a consistent thing throughout a lot of um, modern history, is that education is probably one of the best means to kind of manipulate the masses a bit, to be more politically favourable and more submissive to what you want them to believe. And it's, um, I think, Jamie, I'll, I'll have to take from you, but you often cite the fact that when the Nazi party came to power, the first people they went for were the educationists, the teachers and so on. They removed any socialist um, lecturers and teachers and so on because they didn't want them to teach things that were opposite to what they believed. And of course, there's a world of difference between the Nazi party and uh, modern day government in the, in the United Kingdom. But there is some elements still there, the idea that we want to encourage the next generation to be more proud of their country in ways where a lot of the criticism isn't acknowledged or isn't made aware of. And so they kind of discreetly write maybe the national curriculum in a way that um, enables that or allows that to happen. 
Yeah, so this is the, the basically you get a choice when you're writing a history curriculum, you get a choice of, well, what history are we going to teach and whose history are we going to teach? And I think this is a live debate at the moment with the decolonization of the curriculum debate that's going on. So what are your thoughts about that? Uh, decolonization, you might have to expand upon that for me. So the, the idea of um, the British curriculum is very focused, heavily focused on white British experiences right. and not the experiences of the British Empire and other parts of the British Empire necessarily. Yeah, right, yeah, just the curriculum. Yeah, that, yeah, and um, I think that's completely true. I think I remember going through the um, the curriculum of um, um, for A-levels and there was massive omissions between the effects of colonization, for example, especially on like a lot of African countries. Um, and instead, when it talks about empire, it looks more about the growth of it and the kind of um, almost the success of it. Uh, almost like it wanted to talk about how, you know, Britain, you know, gained the biggest empire in history and that kind of stuff and almost glorify it in a way. You felt like that's where the curriculum could lead. And there was not much focus put on um, the suffering that a lot of uh, people faced and the consequences they still face to this day. Um, so I think that's a, that, that's a big issue. And when we talk about a lot of uh, other countries and the difficulties they went through, you know, it's more negative when you're talking about the chaos of the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution and, um, you know, 1920s Germany and and so on. And, you know, we can look at the negative aspects. But when you focus on Britain, you want to see the, like, you want to you want to teach the content in a way where you see progress and development and kind of like the the things that would make you proud of your own country. And I think that bias is, is kind of weaved deep in, into the history of curriculum. Thanks, James. Great. Um, so, Amy, you talked about funding for access in your um, challenges and opportunities document. So I just wondered if that's linked, do you think, to the discussion we've been having? Um, in any Go on, sorry, Jamie. Um, I think it links in pretty much with, because um, I'm not sure, I think a lot of you teach A-level. Does it really link in with my access? It, it links in pretty much with those who, who teach A-levels. Um, so the, the funding, obviously, you know, Amy mentioned about maths and English grades not being, you know, if students don't have the desired grades that they wanted. Um, and I think it, it's a case of, you know, the the quality, like the, the subjects that we teach. Again, it, it could be, oh, I'm lost myself. Um, where am I? Well, my experience is that, sorry, go on. No, 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 go on, Jamie. I've just lost I've just lost my train of thought. With access, access has always been this thing that came around in the 1960s. It's always been this this second opportunity for people that didn't necessarily do so well in school the first time around or in college the first time around. And access is supposed to be the second opportunity. Now, from what I understood of your challenges and opportunities, what what's been suggested is that actually we're gonna limit is that a political choice maybe um possibly i mean those who were obviously on on i mean i didn't go to university i didn't do my access course till i was in my uh i think it was early 30s that i, I did mine and i didn't get the grades in school that i wanted so it was a second opportunity for me 
Um, I had entry level three in maths and I had to build myself back up um, to be able to do it. So I, I do think that um, with it being obviously looked into um, by government and it's their, you know, their decision to, to limit who goes into university and who doesn't, even though they've, they've said that obviously adult learners, you know, may be exempt from it. However, you know, a lot of adult learners don't have the uh, required um, grades for GCSE or maths, um, but it's not it's not guaranteed that they will be exempt from obviously from the changes that they want into there. So you've talked about that being a, an element of inequality. Yeah. Because of that, then, so I just want to talk about the inequality that you've experienced then. Yeah, the the inequality um, side of it is obviously those who are from an affluent area um, who have better opportunities in school, you know, are more likely um, to be able to to get the desired grade to go up to university, whereas those from a disadvantaged household are obviously less likely due to the schooling that they have. Um, I was doing a little bit of research um, and I'd, I'd read, you know, about 71% of students in England, you know, achieve a grade four in GCSE, English and maths. And that falls to 52% in disadvantaged households, creating that inequality. Um, you know, 18 year old plus um, in England um, that got accepted into university in 2020, you know, 92% of them got a grade four in English and maths. And that 8% who didn't, you know, they might not be able to access higher education, whether that be, you know, university or access courses. Um, I know for an access course, you need, you don't really have to get an, you don't get an undergraduate funding, you get the 19 plus funding. However, that is still run by um, Student Finance England, which would make it a lot harder. Brilliant, thank you. So, Kelly, this draws me on to what you mentioned a little bit. So you talked about um, inequality as well, but from a different sort of angle. You talked about inequality due to COVID and changes in technology. So do you want to talk about the challenges and opportunities you've faced or identified? Yes. Um, it's not necessarily what I've seen in my teaching, because obviously I've not taught through COVID, but I was in education through COVID. And I did see the inequalities for education through technology with it being remote learning so fast that, you know, at university, people are away from home. They don't have the access to the things that they would normally have. Uh, there's no library access, so limit them to what they could do due to, like through online learning and um, accessing any of the resources that were provided. And I think that comes a lot down to to obviously people when they go to uni they know that they've got the access to the library and it's 24 hours and you can go as and when you feel like it or as and when you need when you're at home needing a, a, a physical laptop or pc is an expense that you might not need and due to covid i've seen people really struggle they didn't have the technology they didn't have the means to be able to even go and get some because their families don't have that money either to be able to help provide for them in an instant like that they can get home they couldn't they, they literally couldn't do anything they were completely stuck in that way and when it came to handing in 
their work, they just weren't able to do it. And it was a massive inequality, especially when you've got other people who probably would have been able to help out but couldn't because of COVID. And then I've also seen the positive sides of it as well, though, like where some people who weren't as active in lectures and seminars were even more active online and able to join in and found they had a new confidence. And obviously COVID was awful. And I think that there's lots of positives and negatives to how technology has promoted and worked for, in lots of different ways. But I think it also put a lot of pressure on teachers as well in that they needed to be able to have all that prepared, ready to upload and ready to teach online, even if they didn't know if anyone was coming or not. Yeah, and there's been a lot of criticism of, you know, because of COVID and because of this moving online, as, is that the new normal now? Is that what teaching is going to be moving forward and moving into the future? And if it is, are we aware of the the, the issues that that could bring up? Because what we've seen is COVID made a lot of money for tech giants like Microsoft and and Google and these companies that are sort of, of moving their way into education um, and insist the, the, the privatisation of education by, by stealth to some extent. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think that without having the value of face-to-face -face teaching, you don't have the full benefit of learning. And I think that people are losing how valuable it is to have face-to-face -face teaching. Um, I do think that online learning works in a lot of ways, but I do think there needs to be more options for it rather than it being mandatory. Um, and I think that it's a case of having to keep tabs on people who need to be online. Isn't as easy as what people might think. But then I also think that there's the opportunity to go to universities and colleges that you might not have before. Yeah, I suppose Open University have been doing this for a long time and you could argue that that's it's it's becoming more inclusive. Higher education is becoming more inclusive because people can now attend higher education in, in ways that they weren't previously able to do unless they went to mm -hmm. something like Open University. So would you say that the education system is more inclusive now because of because of technology changes and because of the impact of COVID? It's inclusive if you think about it being an option and not mandatory. If it's optional and you know you have the technology and the funding and the time to be able to do it that way, then obviously making that decision for yourself is the right one. But I think that with COVID forcing it, a lot of people didn't have that option and they didn't have that choice. And it really knocked a lot of people's mental health when it comes to learning. And how would you address that? How would you deal with that as a teacher in the classroom? Um, I think it's something you have to have a discussion about with your students I think personally on a personal level when you when you get to know your students and you're building that rapport you know who can and can't work well on or offline and I think that that would be something that you'd be able to work with regarding whether they were poorly or off or needed to catch up and I think that's another thing that did get brought up was about classes and lectures being recorded all the time regardless um, and while I see that as a good thing that's not really helping anyone when it comes to retrieval practice and re recalling things because they've just got it in front of them not actually learning. It is just regurgitation. So I suppose there's lots of limitations when it comes to actually learning online. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the big issues with, with technology, isn't it? Because information is so readily available now that there's no need to learn anything anymore because it doesn't matter if you don't know it, you can find it out in seconds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really interesting. Thank you. So Ethan, this leads on to what you talked about in, in your challenges and opportunities and, and elements of inclusive practice. So do you want to talk us through what um, what you've put in your document? Uh, so the main uh, issue addressed in my document was uh, how uh, there's, there seems to be this uh, societal uh, concept that uh, biology or psychology teachers are more knowledgeable about things like personal issues. And obviously there are uh, always people at uh, whatever your placement is that are going to be more suited to dealing with these kinds of things, you know, safeguarding professionals. Uh, there's usually counselors, things like that. Um, but a lot of the time people do get it in their heads that, oh, these are biologists, these are psychologists. They are the ones that are probably um, better accustomed to dealing with concepts like, um, you know, oh, I'm having like, learners having issues with things like uh, gender, sexuality, these kinds of issues. Um, it can be uh, directed to the right uh, to the uh, right people, but uh, it, it it can turn out that uh, people such as myself, biology teachers or uh, psychology teachers, uh, will usually be the first ones approached. And I definitely think COVID went a long way in exacerbating that situation because it led to a long time of people just indoors. A, a lot of people got very uh, self-reflective and uh, well, for instance, the LGBTQ plus community massively increased in size as people came to these realizations about themselves because they had time to realize these things. Yeah, I think there's been a huge um, increase in, in mental health and wellness due to the, the pandemic as well, isn't there? Um, but as a teacher, our role is to be aware of the, the of the social issues and be aware of how to and where to signpost our learners to if they come to mm -hmm. come to us with these things. And I think that's true of any safeguarding issue. Um, you know, teachers are often the first people that students will come to to talk about an issue because you're the person that they see daily. You're the mm -hmm. person that they've built a rapport with, a relationship with, and that. Mm -hmm they trust you um now there's professional ways of managing that and that is to signpost them immediately to the correct place mm -hmm. uh, that's not kicking the can down the road that's doing the right thing that's following the list yeah. yeah. uh, it also helps if uh you have already established within your classroom that it is a very supportive environment and it is very accepting of uh whatever identity uh, people may wish to go by. Obviously, this does raise certain conflicts among certain people who have certain views on the subject, uh, but those are also things that have to be addressed through things like safeguarding or prevent. Do you believe that this should be embedded more within the teacher training courses? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, because it's not covered as much as it when we talk about inclusive practice and even teaching ch uh, children and people with um, additional needs. It's a very small 
a sample within a module, mm. isn't it? Whereas really, because of the mental health issues, because of how things are moving on, should that not be a bigger part within the teacher training programmes and should be embedded a little bit more? Personally, I think yes. Uh, I will admit to being biased on that one, um, but it's definitely an issue um, because, well, obviously in college placement specifically, uh, where I'm placed, these are people who are coming, like they're going through the end of puberty, mm -hmm. they're figuring things out about themselves. It can be the most complicated point in their life for them. And yeah. having a figure person there to maybe relate to them or show them this kind of support is so fundamentally important. Yeah. But again, as teachers, Mm -hmm. I know we're trying to say we need to be where the pastoral role, but we still have those, I keep talking about those time constraints as well, don't we? Mm -hmm. In terms of still having to, we're there to deliver a subject. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's that conflict, isn't it, between that humanistic side and then still trying to make sure we are following our curriculum plan, making sure that we are following mm -hmm. the structures of the lesson and making sure that we're embedding that learning. And it's that mm -hmm. conflict all of the time that can occur that's hard to deal mm. with as a teacher it, it i definitely see your point uh, however there's usually a very very simple solution mm -hmm. in that it's you only need to do the very very small things to make yeah. sure that your learners understand that your classroom is a safe space for mm -hmm. them regardless of who they choose to identify as yeah. if you can just do something like respect someone's pronouns yeah. that goes such a long way and you can do that just by like the first lesson asking hey how would you like to be addressed yeah it, it, it's such a small thing but it goes a long way it means a lot yeah definitely mm. yeah i i agree i think setting those kind of expectations and boundaries right at the start is a really important element of teaching amy mm -hmm. do you have a question oh sorry it was just kind oh. of feeding oh. On, oh, sorry, was it the other Amy had a question? I think it was Amy. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, it's confusing when there's two rooms, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of like offer that kind of shared feeling, I guess, like we're all in it together in the sense of mm. I found it very difficult with my class that, you know, very early on there were, um, you know, behavioural issues that I wasn't sure how to deal with. There were sexist comments, there were racist comments, um, you know, there were um, derogatory things. And, you know, and then also there was um, a student in my class who had undiagnosed special educational needs. That I actually had to find out myself that she needed support and I'm, I wasn't trained in that or that mm. was just from life experience. And it made me realise that, wow, we're in this position of of authority and responsibility to have this you know input in this really formative part of somebody's growing up especially after the pandemic and having that detachment physically and I felt very unprepared to mm. navigate these difficult conversations how do I challenge a student that's just made a sexist remark about men how do I uh, steer that how do I avoid animosity how do I you know safely challenge that um you know and and, and lots of different things and it, you sort of you have to then react to that and reflect on that in action rather than feeling that you've got that grounding already we do lots of sort of 
induction and CPD on prevent and, um, you know, looking out for the factors for people who maybe have been radicalised and things. But actually, in my view, from what I've seen, that's less of a relevance than some other issues that, that are in society at the minute that I think would be much more beneficial as a, te- as a teacher coming in. Because, you know, how I react, like you've rightly said, Ethan, how I react in that one moment could have a really profound effect on on somebody and how they feel. And that's a lot of responsibility for, mm. for me to, you know, to feel and I want to do that right. But sometimes you feel as if, you know, you're kind of having to navigate that yourself rather than know where to go to for that kind of um, basis, I guess. So I just wanted to kind of share that in the sense that, you know, I li- I'd like to think we're all kind of in that together and, you know, that we can hopefully navigate that as we go go mm-hmm. through. I suppose it's just experience. But you just don't want to get it wrong and learn from doing it wrong, do you? You want to get it right the first time. Yeah, yeah and that, that is the big problem when it comes to these kinds of issues, because it is experience that helps you deal with them. But you're right, you don't want to get it wrong and have a bad experience and, and negatively impact someone's life expectations and, and chances. Um, that was a really thoughtful um, comment. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing group of young new educators. I'm sure you'll all agree that they'll all go on to be amazing teachers in the future. I just want to say a big thank you for all their contributions today and a big thank you for everyone listening. Hopefully we'll be back soon to talk more about the importance of professionalism, critical thinking and resilience for the 21st century educator. But for now, this has been episode one of Educating the Educators. Speak soon.